You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's high school and college pastor Nolan Smith. Recently, my wife and I decided to undertake a little home renovation project ourselves, which, yeah, so, so we, uh, well, I know now, so, so part of this project was that we were going to redo the floors in our entire house, and so at a certain point, we'd gotten to where we were ready to redo the kitchen floors. Now, kitchen floors are tricky because you've got all these appliances, and you've got to move these appliances that you still need while you're doing this. So you're moving them out. You're taking up the old floor. You're moving them back. You're taking up the old floor there and then doing it again with the new floors, and there's literally a lot of moving parts involved in this. And I remember at one point, we had our our stove, our refrigerator, our washer, and our dryer all out in our already narrow kitchen, and it's it's just a a huge ordeal. It's it's the kind of thing that you you just only want to do at one time, right? That's foreshadowing. Okay, so, so the last part of this project was that we had a plumber come, and he moved a water line from one side of the kitchen to the other so that we could move the refrigerator. And so really the last step in this whole project is that I have to patch up the drywall around uh, this new water line, and then I push the refrigerator back into place, and we're done. And you know that feeling you get when you, you finally get to the end of a project like this, and, and you, you, you put it back in place and you step back and you look at it and you go, I'm done. I don't have to do any more. Right, okay. So about three weeks later, I am sitting at my computer, which is right next to, uh, the desk is right next to the refrigerator. Now it's about 10.30 at night and it's the night before our entire staff is gonna get up early the next morning and head down to Dallas for four days to a conference. See where this is going. So, 10.30 at night, I'm sitting there in the kitchen, and I hear this sound. Drip, drip. I know, yeah. Drip, drip. And uh, so with dread in my heart, I pull the refrigerator out away from the wall to figure out where this drip is coming from. And sure enough, this new water line right here is dripping water. Drip, drip, drip. Now I'm really good at math, and I start to do the calculation in my head. Okay, one drip every second for the past three weeks is so much water. It's so much water. And I look and I see there's, there's no water on the kitchen floor, so that leaves one terrifying option, and it's somewhere under the floor. And now I've got to figure out where and how bad. And so this new floor that I just put down, I have to start pulling it up. Now, these planks aren't made to be pulled up once you put them down, so they're breaking as I do this and I'm casting them aside into this really expensive pile of trash over here. And, and, and I, I start to see that the, the subflooring has expanded. It's like a sponge that's just soaking up all this water and there's mold all over it and it's just gonna have to be completely cut out and replaced, like totally ruined. And so I've got the refrigerator back in the middle of the kitchen. You can't really walk through the kitchen. You can't open the refrigerator to get inside of it. There's this pile of uh, flooring right here. There's a subfloor that's just moldy and nasty and needs to be ripped up. And I look at Suze, my wife, and I go, I'm sorry, I can't do anything about this. I have eight hours until I have to leave for four whole days, and I can't do anything about this. There's just nothing for me to do right now. And I felt even worse because I realized that it was my fault. Because... 
That new water line, when I pulled the refrigerator out and patched up the drywall around it, I forgot to fully tighten that hose and push it back. And I learned a really hard lesson that day, a lesson I think we all have to learn more times than we'd like throughout our lives. And it's that when we make mistakes, those mistakes have consequences. And those consequences affect other people. And that is the lesson that David is gonna learn in our passage today. Now just to review, a couple weeks ago, Lance took us through the passage of that most infamous sin in David's life, that he commits adultery and then he tries to cover it up with deception and then commits murder. And, and then last week, we saw Reggie take us through the, the, the immediate consequences of that sin, that there was a, a curse pronounced on David's life, that, hey, because of this, the sword will never leave your house, that there will be violence within your family as a result of this sin. David lost his infant, his infant son. And, and Reggie showed us how that's not prescriptive to us, that we wouldn't look at that and go, okay, well, because it happened to David, then every time that we uh, do something bad, then we should expect something like that to happen. But nevertheless, David saw those immediate consequences, and then Reggie showed us that there's grace. And we got, to, we got to walk through that, the fact that even in the worst of our sins, God forgives us of that, that there's grace to be found, redemption to be had in that. But this week, we're going to look further into David's future, and we're going to see the consequences and how far they go from that sin that he committed. And just to catch us up, we're, we're, we, we won't look at uh, some of these passages that we'll skip past, but what happens from there is David's going to have more children. He's got several wives, and he, and he has lots of children, and, and one of his children is a daughter named Tamar. And Tamar has a half-brother, another of David's children, Amnon. Amnon looks at Tamar and desires her, and ultimately what he does is he, he rapes his half-sister. It's just a horrible, tragic thing. And then in response to that, Tamar's brother, Absalom, Amnon's half-brother, kills Amnon, takes vengeance on him. And while we hear that, we go, well, I, I mean, I at least get where he's coming from, right? That was terrible. The reality is Absalom still broke the law. He still did something that was punishable by death. And so as a result of what Absalom did, David has to make a decision. He's the king. So he has two choices. He can, he can carry out justice. He can bring Absalom in and say, hey, you get the punishment for your crimes and put him to death. Could have done that. Or... As a father, he could have brought Absalom back and pardoned him, restored him, brought him back in and restored him to the family. Could have done either of those things. But caught between that tension, between his responsibilities as a king and his affections as a father, David resigns to passivity. He doesn't do either. He doesn't make a decision. And so what results from that is that Absalom is, he's brought back to Jerusalem, but he's not, he's not killed. He's not put to death. But David won't see him, won't talk to him. And so Absalom grows frustrated with his father, angry at him. He says, I wish my dad would just put me to death because this is worse. Just freezing me out like this, not letting me go free, not punishing me, this is worse. And that is the tension that leads us to our passage today, 2 Samuel chapter 15. So we're gonna see what comes out of this. Beginning in verse one. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. When any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, 
Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to see you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I, I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. So it's real clear what Absalom's doing here. Absalom goes out to the gate. I imagine he sort of leans over, watches these people walk in, and he goes, hey, where are you from? Well, come over here. What are, you, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm, I'm here to see the king. I, I need his judgment on something. Oh, the king. Yeah, that guy's not going to see you. He didn't have time for you. But tell you what, I would. I'd see you. I'd give you what you need. I'd give you justice. And we don't know exactly what details are, are left out of this story, but the way that it reads, Absalom doesn't even hear their problem. All they say is, we need a judgment on something. And Absalom goes, oh, that's a good point you've got there. Yeah, I, I would actually, I'd take good care of you with that. I would, I would make sure that you got the justice that you need. And isn't it ironic what's happening here? When you really, you step back and you think about what's going on in this passage, David, when he had a decision to make with Absalom, he needed to make a decision and he wouldn't do it. David didn't make the decision he needed to make and now there are men coming and seeking a decision from David. And what's happening? Absalom is intercepting them. He's stopping it from happening, and as a result, verse six, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The allegiance of these people, it's supposed to be David's, but because of David's indecision, and ultimately because of his sin, now his son is stealing the people of Israel from him. And thus starts the rebellion. And the thing about rebellions is somebody is coming for the throne, but it's not just the throne they seek, it's the life of the king who sits on it. So Absalom is coming after his father's throne, but he's also gonna come for his father's life. That's David's problem now. That's a big problem. And so we're gonna look at how David's going to respond to the mess that he's made. What is David going to do now? Well, the first thing David's gonna do is he's gonna run. I think... That makes sense. This guy's coming to try and kill him. Got to get out of here. But David's going to look around. He's going to see all the people who are with him, who, who serve him, and go, look, it's not just my life that's in danger. It's all of your lives too, so we need to leave. Let's gather everything we can and get out of the city and go find somewhere safe. And so he's rounding up all his people, and they're getting out of Jerusalem, and that's where we're going to see the first of these little episodes on the run. Skip ahead to, to verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, then behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So what happens? They're all on their way out of town. And these people who are in charge, these priests who are in charge of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the representation of, the, of God's presence among his people, 
they think, well, David would want the ark to come with them. They don't even bother to ask. It goes without saying that, of course, David's going to want this to come too. So they grab it, they round it up, and they're on their way out of town. And David sees them bringing it, and he says, wait, stop. No, no, that doesn't come with us. That stays here. And the reason is David, David probably realizes that the Ark of the Covenant belongs with God's people, not, not this king who's running away from his own mess. And so David says, no, I'm not bringing that with me. David chooses faithfulness, chooses obedience. God wants that Ark among his people. I'm not going to go against that. I'm not going to take it for myself. And this response is actually meant to be contrasted against some people who had the ark in their possession before him. The Philistines and Saul, David's predecessor, they had the ark in their possession as well. And when they were on the run or when they were on the move, they did take the ark with them. They took the ark believing that if we have the ark, God will protect us. But David chooses not to do that. David chooses to say, no, I'm leaving the ark where it belongs. I made this mess and I'm not going to manipulate the situation and try and control this now. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. So David's first response is humility. Next, we're going to fast forward a little bit to a, a, a moment when, still on the run, David is going to have this encounter. He's going to run into somebody, and we're going to see how this encounter goes, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 16. It says, When, David, when King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, this guy's either crazy or he's brave, because he's coming at the king, surrounded by all his men, all his bodyguards, and he's cursing him and throwing things at him and saying, you're an evil man and you're getting what you deserve. You're getting what you deserve because you, David, committed evil against my family, Saul, your predecessor, you committed evil against us, and that is why you're suffering what you're suffering right now. Is that true? We have at least a couple of examples that we can look back at to verify this claim. First, and we went through this within this series, was that a moment when David is running away from Saul. Saul was pursuing David, trying to kill him, just as Absalom is pursuing him now. David was on the run from Saul, and he was hiding in a cave when Saul comes in there to relieve himself, right? And he's in the most vulnerable possible position. And David goes up to him, and he cuts off a piece of his robe, and then he shows it to him. Hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And even that moment, David goes, that was too far. I shouldn't have even done that. And he apologizes. And then a little bit later, when David does take the throne... It would have been customary for kings at this time, once they took the throne, was to find all the family of their predecessor and kill all of them to make sure that no one had a legitimate claim to the throne, that no one was going to come after the throne once they took it. And so David actually found out about this man named Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is from Saul's family. He was a cripple. 
you think about what he represented, he represented not only the family of, of his predecessor, but somebody who could just absolutely not defend himself. So vulnerable. And David calls for Mephibosheth to be brought in. He brings him in, and he says, I'm going to give you a place at my table. and You will always have a place at King David's table. And it's this beautiful story of, of mercy from David to, towards Mephibosheth, and it actually creates this friendship that carries on through even this part of David's story. We won't look at, at that specifically, but, but Mephibosheth comes back up later, and we see that he's still loyal to David. They're still friends, and, and it's this moment where you recognize David, he, he went against convention. He didn't do what was expected. He had mercy on this family. So you come back to Shimei and his his argument or his, his reasoning. He's telling David, that is why you're suffering what you're suffering. So does David defend himself? Verse 11, and David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. And the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David's people say, look, Dave, we'll we'll kill him. We'll take him out right now. This guy's cursing you. He's throwing stuff at you. He's not showing you the kind of respect you deserve. Let's just kill him. And David says, no, don't, don't do that. Leave this guy alone. He's right. He's right? No, he's not. David, this guy's not right. You didn't do what he accused you of doing. Why isn't David defending himself? Well, think for just a second what that defense would sound like, right? This guy's saying, Hey, you were evil towards my family. That's why you're getting this. And David's going, no, I'm not. I stole a different guy's wife and I murdered him. So back off, right? It's a terrible defense. Doesn't make any sense. And yet David had every right in that moment to defend himself. And we look at that and we think he'd be justified to say that, to call out the technicality. But David doesn't do that. David sees the bigger point here. He doesn't get tripped up in the details. He goes, you know what? Yeah, he's right. This is my fault. I'm not going to kill this guy for calling that out. God is being clear in this. I messed up. I'm not going to blame someone else. I'm not going to defend myself. That's the point here. Again, David demonstrates tremendous humility in his response. And for the record, I have never defended myself on a technicality. All right, don't ask my wife about that. Okay, moving ahead. We're going to look one more... One more thing that's going to happen before this all comes to a head. Now, David's people realize, hey, we're going to have to face Absalom's people in battle. And David wants to go out with them, and they say, David, you're not coming. You're too important. You're going to stay behind. We're going to go fight Absalom's men. And so before they leave, chapter 18, verse 5, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David sees where this is going. He recognizes there is this inevitable end to his consequences. It's all coming to a head, and he knows what it means. And, and, and again, you think about this place and time and, and what this would have looked like. A guy's coming for the throne king's got a responsibility. He's got to protect the throne. He's got to protect the kingdom. He's got to preserve the peace. And somebody comes to the throne, doesn't matter if it's his son or not, he's got to put an end to this. 
And I would imagine there were a great many kings throughout history who, even if it was their son, they'd say, you know what? He's making his choices now. If this is the choice he wants to make, then so be it. We're going to put an end to this, even if it means he's got to die. That's just how it has to be. But that's not what David does. We see David caught again in this tension between his responsibilities as a king and his affections as a father, and he knows this is my, my fault. I've brought this on myself, and I don't want the worst to happen. So please, don't kill my son. Protect him. We'll see if it works out. Verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. It's kind of a weird image. There's actually a lot of theological implications to this picture that we won't dig into. It's real interesting, but, but ultimately what has happened is Absalom is caught by his hair in these branches, and his hair was, a, it was said to have been really beautiful and long and thick, and it was a point of pride for him. And it's that same hair that has got him entangled now, stuck, vulnerable. And what happens? A certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. It's almost funny what's happening here. One of David's commanders hears about this, uh, this situation where Absalom is stuck. A man comes and tells him, I saw him, he's stuck over there. And he goes, well, why didn't you kill him then? And he goes, what do you mean, why would I, why would I kill him? The king, I heard the king tell you not to kill him. And so look, if you want to kill him, that's on you. I'm not doing that. And he says, well, I would have paid you to do it. And he goes, look, even if you'd paid me way more than what you just said. I still wouldn't have done it. And then he tells him, on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself, you would have stood aloof. He tells him, if I had done it, I'd bear the responsibility of that and you wouldn't protect me. You'd have left me out to dry. I mean, he gets called out, right? Joab gets called out. And so how does Joab respond to that? Verse 14, and Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. Yeah, stop talking to me, move. What does Joab do? He took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. And the inevitable happens. David loses yet another of his children. And it all comes back to his sin. David's gonna find out in verse 32, he's waiting at this, at this gate. He's looking out over the horizon. He's anxiously waiting somebody to come back from the front lines with word. You know he was just sick with worry as he sits there waiting to find out. And he sees this guy come over, and, and, he, and the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. He says, Anybody that tries what Absalom tried, I hope they get his same fate. And David knows what this means. It means Absalom's dead. Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, 
Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David sees it all play out. What he could not prevent, his son dying because of his own sin. And what does a passage like this tell us? Thousands of years ago, a king commits adultery and murder. and There's violence in his house all the way up until the point where several of his children die. Somebody comes after his throne, his son comes after his throne, and his son dies. What does that tell us? What do we take from a passage like this? Well, the first thing that we can take from this is what we already know. It's that sin always has consequences. It reminds me of a, the opening line of the movie The Patriot, where we hear Mel Gibson's voice come on and say, I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. David's sins returned to visit him, and he couldn't bear the cost. I remember years ago, I was talking to Lance, and, and we were talking about a group of people who, who were all dealing with this, this pain and, and, and strife, and all of it came back down to the sinful choice of one person. And I remember Lance told me, he goes, this just goes to show that you never sin in isolation. Your sin always affects those around you. David has to learn that painful lesson here. But there were supernatural consequences to his sin, right? We saw that last week. But there are some natural consequences too. Things that you would go, yeah, that, I would expect that to happen after what David did. That you think about children born into that family and under those circumstances. And I don't know if his kids found out that he murdered the first husband of one of his wives or not. But in Absalom's case, you have to imagine that some of that impulsivity and selfishness, that wasn't just inherited, that was learned. There are natural consequences to doing what David did, and he's seeing them play out in his life. But I want to be clear on this point. When we say sin always has consequences, this is not what I'm saying, and this is not what the scriptures are saying. If you're going through pain, or you're going through suffering, it must be your fault. That's not it. That's not true. That we're all dealing with, with pain and suffering at different times in our lives. Some of us are there right now. And what the scriptures are not doing are calling us to go, okay, if you're, if you're hurting right now, why is that? What did you do? And, and, and some of us in here have heard that before. We've been in a place like that where we're struggling and somebody comes alongside us and they go, well, gosh, what'd you do to deserve this? What do you need to repent of? It's not true. Because while pain and suffering are the consequence of our sin sometimes, pain and suffering is always the consequence of original sin. That sin is always the reason for our suffering. And that's what we need to realize. But we'll come back to that in a minute. The second thing that this passage tells us is that we always have a choice in how we respond. When we're facing those consequences of sin, we have a choice. And David showed us that. Things were getting out of David's control real quick. There were things he couldn't prevent, things he couldn't stop from happening. But one thing David could control was his response. David could control how he responded to the consequences of his sin, and we saw it. We saw a positive example in at least a couple ways. First, we saw it in his humility. That when these things were unfolding in front of David, David accepted it as his own fault. Yeah, I messed up. I sinned. 
He had the opportunity to defend himself, remember? There, were, there was a, a point where he could have defended himself on a technicality, and he doesn't even do that. No, this is, my, this is my sin. These are my consequences. And it was that humility that David demonstrates, the ability to confess his sin, admit that he was wrong, that leads, that leads to the next thing that he did well. And it doesn't come directly from this passage, but David trusts in something. David's able to respond well because he trusts that God promises to work all things together for our good. David knows who God is, and he knows what God is capable of, and he trusts the Lord. He says, I can't control the outcome of these consequences, and I've got to face what I've done and how that's affected me and other people around me, but I know that God is good, and I know that he can use this. It's too late for him to mitigate those consequences, to undo them, but he can trust in the Lord. This promise comes to us out of Romans 8.28 where Paul tells us, hey, God promises to work together all things for the good of those who love him. All things. And so, what does that mean? It means that one day, whether it's this side of eternity or the next, we'll be able to look at all the circumstances of our life and know God used them for our good. I picture one day standing next to Jesus with his arm around me and we're looking back over my life and we're looking at some of those dark moments, those dark seasons of pain and me telling him, that was so hard. I felt so alone. I was angry at you. It didn't make sense, but I see it now. I get it. And you used it for my good. You used it to draw me closer to you and make me more into the likeness of you. You use that for my good. And so the challenge from this text for us today is this. First, are you willing to acknowledge your sin? And again, this isn't the circumstance for all of us in here today. Not all of us are facing the consequences of our sin right now. But at some point in our lives, we will. At some point in our lives, we will see, we will look around and recognize that there is something going on around us, people who are hurting, and we'll go, yeah, that was because of me. And are you willing to acknowledge that? In a moment where you recognize that people are hurting and it is your fault, not defend yourself, not blame others, but say, yeah, yeah, I brought this on myself. Yeah, this is my sin. But if that's not you, if it's not because of your sin, and like we said, not all of our pain and our suffering is, can you at least recognize that it's the consequence of sin? This is not because God has forgotten you. It's not because God's abandoned you. This is the consequence of sin. And then finally, are you willing to trust God moving forward? If you can acknowledge the source of your pain and your suffering, then can you can you recognize this and trust in God moving forward? Because sin will always lead to despair. But God paid a heavy price to make sure that despair was not the end of our story. The whole message of the Bible is that in the beginning, when Adam and Eve, they were there with God in this perfect, harmonious relationship with their creator. And he said, just trust me. Don't take things into your own hands. Def define good on your own terms. Don't take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
Trust that what I say is good is good. And rather than obedience, they chose disobedience. They said, no, we're going to take it into our own hands and define good on our own terms. That's sin. And it broke that relationship. And now Adam and Eve, marred by their sin, entangled in their sin, they can no longer have that perfect relationship with their holy creator. Because if you think about what holiness means, it's perfect and it's antithetical to anything sinful. And so anything that is, is marred by sin that comes into the physical presence of a holy God, it'll be destroyed. That's what his holiness is. It destroys sin, destroys evil. And so they couldn't be close to him anymore. And in an act of mercy, God removes himself from the garden. Heaven and earth are split. And Adam and Eve are left there in the garden now broken from this relationship with their creator, no longer in his physical presence. But there was another tree in that garden, the tree of life. And that tree of life was what allowed them to stay and live there forever in that perfect relationship. But now that it's not a perfect relationship anymore, God says, I don't want you to stay there forever. I don't want you to live forever in your brokenness. So not only am I gonna remove myself, I'm gonna cast you out of that garden too. You're gonna be cast out of that garden so you don't live forever in your sinful state. And he cast them out and that, that relationship was fractured for good until something could be done about it. And God started his redemption plan. And eventually he would step into that broken world, that world that now broken by sin, not only because of human choice and the way that it affects human relationships, but the physical world itself. When he removed his physical presence from the world, it was like this stabilizing force that's gone. And the world descends not only into relational pain, but disease and despair and disaster. It's a broken world, broken by sin. That's what it means that these are all the consequences of sin. But God would step back into that world. He would put on flesh, come into that world in the person of Jesus, move to us in our suffering, in our hopelessness, recognizing that now that you are marked by your sin, you are entangled in that sin, there is no hope out of that other than to be cleansed of that sin. If you ever want to be brought back into that relationship with your holy creator God, then you're going to have to be cleansed of your sin, and you can't do that yourself. You can't cleanse yourself of your sin. The only thing that can cleanse you of that sin is if a perfect, sinless man comes into this world and says, I'll take your sin and you can have my righteousness and I'll go to the cross and I'll pay that penalty for your sin there and you get my righteousness and a chance to be reunited with your creator. And that's what he did. And there on that cross, the only sinless, innocent man to ever live chose to go to that cross and be punished like he was responsible for every sin ever committed. What a terrible thing that is, that an innocent man would be punished like he committed every sin in the world. It's the worst imaginable thing. And what did God do with it? He used it. He used that death to bring us life. God took the worst thing imaginable to give us the best thing imaginable. And so when we hear that God promises to use all things, work all things together for our good, it's not just a promise that he will one day deliver on. It's a promise he's already delivered on. He already did it. He already showed us. I can take anything. I can take sin's best shot 
Death is, is what the Bible calls the sting of sin. So sin can take its best shot at Jesus, but he doesn't stay dead. Instead, he walks out of that tomb declaring victory over sin and death and giving life to all who would believe. To all who would believe in him, just trust. That's what he did on that cross for me. So if you've never trusted in him for that, it's a great day to do that. You can trust in Jesus as your savior taking your sin to the cross, giving you his righteousness and bringing you back into that right relationship with your creator. But if you've already made that decision, and maybe you're in a season right now, pain, suffering, and you're struggling to hold on, but you can look to the cross and be reminded of this, that when God tells you, I can work all things together for your good, and I've already done that. I did it on the cross. So trust me, I'll do it again. And we can trust that. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.